0: Well, we are doing things a little differently this morning than we normally do on a on a typical Sunday at least for this portion of our worship service where we turn to god's word our typical pattern here as it relates to the sermons at least that are preached in our church um, is to work through biblical books verse by verse or through biblical, theological, even practical subjects together, kind of piece by piece, Sunday by Sunday. That's our normal pattern, normal diet uh, as it concerns God's Word. But today's sermon is structured around questions that you sent in um, over the past week about issues that you've been thinking about or wrestling through as you've been meditating upon and seeking to apply scripture in your own lives and I like to do this sort of thing every now and every now and again every once in a while because it gives us a chance to cover and address issues that um, we are all dealing with but that may not be directly addressed as we work through biblical books and theological subjects together Sunday by Sunday I've said in the past that Preaching the Bible week by week is a little bit like painting a house with a little watercolor paintbrush, you know, where you just, every Sunday you just, you can only paint a little square and uh, you can only deal with so much. You can only say so much about the things that you do deal with since you can really only deal with one thing at a time each Sunday and there's no way to even say everything that needs to be said about that one thing. And so, um, what that means though is that every week, uh, I and, and Kyle feel a burden not only for the things that we are addressing from scripture, but also about the things that we simply don't have the time to address. Knowing that many of the things we don't have time to address may very well be things that many of you are dealing with and, and thinking about. So, I like to stop every now and again to, to address some of the things that you may be dealing with, to address uh, from Scripture things that are on your mind and heart, and so to that end this morning, we're going to wrestle with five questions that you have asked this week There were actually, uh, I lost count, 11, 12, something like that asked, um, and so we're going to deal with five this week, a couple more next week, and then some I might just have to respond by email or something. So, um, but before we get into that, I just want to uh, go to the Lord together, invite you to pray with me and, and let's ask the Lord to bless our, our hearing of his word this morning. Father, we thank you for this privilege that we have, um, to open your word, to, to open our ears to hear what you have said, ways that you've revealed yourself to us, truths that you've made known to us about yourself and about ourselves and about the world in which we live. We pray this morning that you would help us to open our hearts to your word, open our ears to your voice, that as we look to your word, how uh, this time might serve as a as a channel of grace from your throne into our lives that you might distribute and direct and and dish out your grace, pour it out upon us as we hear your word and help us to think more rightly about you and to live more sincerely and humbly. Before you. So make this time a blessing, Lord, for your glory. For we do pray in the name of Jesus, your son. Amen. Alright, so five questions that we're dealing with this morning. Question number one is a question about the jealousy of God. The jealousy of God. The question is, what does scripture mean when it says that God is a jealous God. What is the jealousy of God? Well, scripture uh, in the Old Testament in particular is full of references to the jealousy of God. The first time that that word is used in reference to God comes from the opening words of the Ten Commandments. The opening words of God and the giving of the Ten Commandments. If you want to turn to Exodus Chapter 20, that's where we'll start this morning. Exodus chapter 20, this is the first reference to the jealousy of God, and it's, it's a, a reference used and spoken by God Himself, interestingly enough. So Exodus 20, verses 1 through 6, uh, give us the context. We'll see it in this passage. or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Some other examples of the Lord referring to himself as a jealous God would include passages like Exodus 34 and verse 14, uh, where he says you shall worship no other God for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. Deuteronomy 4.24 for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Deuteronomy 5.9 for I the Lord your God am a jealous God and Deuteronomy 6.15 for the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. And then those very words, that theme continues to be repeated throughout Israel's history. And then in the words of their prophets in Ezekiel 36 and verse six, verse six, thus says the Lord God, behold, I have spoken in my jealous wrath and Ezekiel 39 verse 25. There, therefore, the Lord, therefore, thus says the Lord God, and I will be jealous for my holy name. That's just a small sampling, actually, of the references to, to the jealousy of God. And the reason it it, it strikes our ears as, uh, as funny or off is because jealousy is not often thought of as a good thing, right? So this might strike our ears a little strange, but when scripture refers to the jealousy of God, it's not talking about uh, a, a sort of vicious jealousy, as J.I. Packer calls it, that that hates to see another person succeed or that covets what another person has and wishes that you had it instead of them. That's how we tend to think of jealousy. That's not the jealousy of God. The jealousy of God is his loving zeal to guard what is important to him. It's his loving zeal to guard what is important to him and what is it that's important to him. I mean, in scripture we see whenever, you know, the jealousy of God is mentioned, it's attached to things like his own glory, his own reputation in the world. It's attached to the people that he saves by grace. It's attached to the holiness and the urgency of his commands. It's attached to... to his desire that his commands be kept by his people. It's attached to his promises. It's attached to his word. And his jealousy means that he will do whatever it takes to guard these things and to show us in the world that they are valuable to him, even if it means him taking what we might consider to be drastic action to do so. Quote a few theologians here. On this issue, uh, first quote says, The jealousy of God is his zealous protectiveness of all that belongs to him. Another theologian says, God's jealousy is a passionate zeal to guard the exclusiveness of a marriage relationship. Specifically, the marriage relationship that he has with his redeemed people. Leading, this theologian says, to anger against those who are not faithful to him. Packer calls the jealousy of God a zeal to protect a love relationship. So it's a covenantal jealousy. It's a, it's a deep desire to see a covenantal relationship preserved and flourishing. So he goes on to say that the jealousy of God is his demand from those whom he has loved and redeemed for utter and absolute loyalty and his commitment to vindicate this demand by stern action against them if they betray his love by unfaithfulness. So you could think of the jealousy of God, you could you can liken it to the, the deep desire of a husband or a wife to see his or her spouse remain faithful to the covenant of marriage that, that they've made with one another. Any spouse who doesn't have that deep desire for the covenant of marriage to be upheld simply doesn't love his or her spouse. So it is with God. He's zealously committed to those he saves and is zealous about them, about us staying faithful to him, and he will work to ensure that our marriage with him for for those who are in Christ is preserved even if it means taking severe action toward us when we sin. So um, the difference between the jealousy of God and the jealousy of man, the sinful jealousy of man versus the righteous jealousy of God, is that with God, his desire is to protect what is already his. Whereas our jealousy is, is to to get what is not ours. Does that make sense? His jealousy is about guarding what belongs to him. Ours is about getting what doesn't belong to us. So it's a very good thing that God is a jealous God. It means that he is serious, it means that he is passionate in a sense. It means that he is zealous about what is best for his people and will do whatever it takes to do what's best for us. So hopefully that helps a little, with that question. That was question number one. Question number two, and we're just going to have to shift gears here, okay? Question number two is a question about the extent of the atonement. The extent of the atonement. Specifically, the question is, did Jesus die for all sins, even those of people who never repented, or did he just die for the sins of his own redeemed people? Then there's a follow-up to the question. In other words, are the people in hell suffering only for rejecting Christ? Or are they suffering for their own sins that they did not regret, meaning they died in their sin? Um, as you can see, I mean, the questions we got this week are just softball questions, right? <laughs> Knock it out of the park. Okay. Um, tough, tough questions. We're going to tackle this one in two parts because it's asked in two parts. Um, first, we'll deal with the initial way the question is stated. Did Jesus die for all sins, even those of people who never repented? Or did he just die for the sins of his own redeemed people? Okay. It's an important question. And, um, though Though Christians have disagreed a lot actually when it comes to how to answer it, but the the crux of the question among at least among Orthodox Christians, people who believe that sinners are only saved from the judgment of God through the cross of Christ, um, that faith in Jesus is required to be saved at all, among people who believe that, who agree on that, the crux of the question is really, to what extent was Christ's atonement for sin on the cross limited? To what extent, or in what sense, was Christ's atonement on the cross limited? Specifically, was it limited in its scope, in its intent, or was it limited in its effectiveness? If that makes sense. Or to put it another way, was. Jesus' intent in the cross to save specific people from sin and death, or was it simply to make salvation possible for everyone? And one presupposition that I hope we all can agree on, at least the members of our church here, is that the cross accomplished whatever God designed it to accomplish. And, and whatever Christ intended to accomplish, right? So the cross was not a failure in any sense to execute God's intentions in any way, shape or form. The cross was not a failure. Okay. So whatever Jesus sought to do on the cross, he did on the cross, period, end. That's why, by the way, when he's on the cross near the end, the very, very end, near his last breath, he cries out, it is what? Finished. Which actually means it is accomplished. So he's not saying, Ooh, I'm glad this is over. He's saying, I did it. I did what I came to do. It is accomplished. So in the mind of Christ, whatever he came to accomplish, he did accomplish on the cross. I've done what I came to do. So what was it that Jesus intended to do? What did he intend to accomplish by his death on the cross? And one way to answer that question is simply to look at what the Bible says about how the scriptures talk about what his death did accomplish. So what does scripture have to say about the accomplishment of Jesus and his cross? It actually says quite a lot about that I'll give you a small sampling of scriptures to meditate upon here but when scripture speaks of the accomplishment of the cross it, it, and the accomplishment of Christ on the cross it speaks of Jesus as effectively saving sinners through his death he effectively saved them through his death so Matthew 121 she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Or Luke 19 and verse 10, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Or Galatians 1, 3 and 4, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Galatians 3, three Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Titus 2.14, uh, speaking of Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. We could go on. Romans 5 and verse 10 speaks of, uh, the death of God's son as reconciling us to God. Colossians one refers to his death as reconciling us to God in his body by his death on the cross. So when scripture seeks or when scripture speaks of what Jesus accomplished, what the cross accomplished, it speaks in very effectual terms. The cross effectively saved a people. For God. It effectively saved people. It doesn't just, it doesn't speak of the cross as making salvation possible. As making, uh, making it an option for sinners. It talks of Jesus and His cross as saving them. Effectively. So it's, it speaks of the accomplishment of the cross in those terms. It also speaks of the intent of the cross though the ultimate design the ultimate purpose of the cross and it often refers to Jesus intent as that of coming to save specific people by dying on the cross so if you notice in Matthew 121 it says she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins or John 10 verses 14 through 16 where Jesus says i am the Good shepherd, I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me. And I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And then he says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Mark ten forty-five. I think, uh, points at this for even the son of man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many Ephesians five twenty-five: husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her uh, what I'm trying to show here is that when the Bible speaks of the accomplishment of Jesus, the accomplishment of his cross, it speaks in very definite, very effective, uh, even triumphant and successful language. So it, it doesn't, Jesus doesn't just make people savable through his death, he saves by his death. He doesn't just make salvation possible to everyone through his death. He redeems and rescues specific people through his death. That is to say, as someone said, I can't remember who it was. It might have been R.C. Sproul. Um, may not be. But it, whoever it was said, when Jesus went to the cross, he took names with him. He took names. Meaning Jesus knew who exactly he was dying for on the cross and his death not only made them savable, it saved them to the uttermost. So John Murray says, Christ did not come to put men in a redeemable position, but to redeem himself a people. And I would suggest to you that this is always and only how the Bible speaks in reference to the intent and the accomplishment of Christ's death on the cross. Now, as it concerns those who are or who will end up suffering under God's judgment in hell, as the second part of this question asked, I would say that hell is the eternal judgment of God upon sinners for all their sins, not merely the sin of rejecting Christ. So you get this idea all throughout the Bible, really, uh, Isaiah 66 and verse 24, the end of the prophecy of Isaiah, which says they shall go out, meaning God's people, God's redeemed people, shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. Very general term. They've rebelled against God. First Corinthians 6 verses 9 through 10, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Or Revelation 21 and verse 8, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion, he says, will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Those passages make clear that it is for all kinds of sins that unbelievers suffer in hell, which would be totally unnecessary if Jesus had suffered for everyone's sins except for the one sin of rejecting Christ on the cross. But again, Jesus' death didn't clear the slate for every human being, making it merely possible to be saved from the wrath of God. He effectively saved his own people through his death covering every single sin that they've ever committed from the most involuntary and insignificant of sins to the very worst and most heinous of sins and everything in between. Now I'm confident that that answer may very well provoke a whole series of follow-up questions, um, but we'll leave it there for now in hopes that at least it, you find that it was answered honestly and hopefully biblically. But we can talk more if you have follow-up questions. I'm always happy to talk about them. The next question is a, another heavy question about God's purpose in our pain. The question is why would God give us such sensitive pain sensors in this life knowing that people would invent torture, cruelty, abortion, rape, and child abuse and knowing how much Jesus would suffer on the cross. How can he call these horrific things light and momentary affliction? Again, it's a two-part question. So we'll answer it in two parts. The first part of the question is a variation of the age old problem of evil, right? The, 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 the question, the objection to Christianity that goes, if God is, is good and all powerful, why does evil exist? Um, what is God's purpose in the pain and evil and suffering and agony of this world? Here, the question's a little more uh, nuanced and specified. The question here, really, is why did God create a world where pain would be so painful and where sin would be so wicked and where suffering would be so intense? Not just why does it exist in a general sense, but why is it so bad and so terrible? And that, it, it's not the sort of question that's answered by a single Bible verse, right? One simple statement that sort of explains the whole thing, like, oh yeah, there it is in Romans 17. There is no Romans 17, by the way. This, this is why God, here it is, this is why God made a world that would eventually be filled with such great sin and pain and agony. Just one verse, open and shut. There is no one verse, really. Rather, this is you know, the sort of question that's answered with careful theological reasoning and with your whole Bible. The whole thing needs to be brought in here. But one assumption I make here based upon what I see in Scripture is that God must have a perfectly good and perfectly wise purpose for the intensity of pain and suffering that's experienced all throughout this fallen world, that the terribleness of sin and suffering in this world is not out of his hands and it's not beyond his ability to fix immediately if he wanted to. So then he must have good purposes in it. So what might those good purposes be? And admittedly, we're not able to, you know, quote chapter and verse here necessarily so we're we're treading on some mysterious ground and we don't have all the answers to questions like this and we shouldn't claim to have all the answers to questions like this or anywhere near the depth of understanding that God does when it comes to the answers to these questions but I actually think the passage referenced here in the second part of this question might help us out might help us think through this question the passage is 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18, if you want to flip there. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 through 18. Where God says through Paul, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction, or New American Standard says, this momentary light affliction, King James, I believe, says, light affliction which is for a moment. This slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul here is talking about how suffering and great suffering is effective for helping us appreciate the glories of the life to come. And he actually argues here that, that, that God uses the intensity of pain and suffering in this life to help prepare us to help ready our hearts for eternity. Meaning that we will appreciate God and his grace and life with him in the eternal state all the more precisely because of the painfulness of pain in this life, which is helpful, I think. And if we use that sort of reasoning, I think we can rightly come to a whole series of other conclusions about God's purpose at least generally so, behind the, behind the acuteness of our pain and the wickedness of sin in this life. What could be God's purpose in creating a world where such pain and agony is possible? I think Paul might encourage us to consider, could it be to awaken us to other realities? Could it be to awaken us to other truths? about God and his world. So, for instance, could it be to, to open our eyes to the reality and to the seriousness of sin? Since sin is ultimately why the world is so broken, after all. Or could it be to open our eyes to the to the holiness of God's character, of the consequences for disobeying him, of the urgency of living in a way that's that's right with him, could it be to open our eyes to the magnitude of his grace? Paul even says where, where sin abounds, or where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. We know more about God's grace because of the sinfulness of sin. Even because of our own sinfulness, we know more about God's grace. Could it be to open our eyes to the, the immensity of his saving love? For God so loved the world. Are you kidding me? You know, that's what we should say. The world? This this God-hating, broken, rebellious, fallen, hurtful, harmful system that's organized against God. God has love for people in that system. Could it be to open our eyes to the depths of what Christ actually suffered on the cross? It wasn't light. Could it be to open our eyes to our need for God when you see the brokenness of this world, the fallenness of this world, and you feel it for yourself? It should increase your sense of how much you need God. That's good. Among other things, I would argue that God's purpose in our pain and our sin and our suffering and all the pain and sin and suffering in the world, at least in some significant part, is to open our eyes to the weight and the seriousness and the truthfulness of a whole host of other truths about himself and about ourselves. I think C.S. Lewis was probably onto something when he said in his book, The Problem of Pain, he says, Pain, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our consciences, but shouts to us in our pain. It is his megaphone, he says, to rouse a deaf world. Then to the second part of the question here how can God call these horrific things light and momentary affliction, as he does in 2 Corinthians 4? 16 to 18. And I believe he can say that for two reasons. One, because of the temporary nature of suffering. God is going to put all this to an end one day. So it's momentary. But also because of the weight of the beauty and the peace that will characterize life with him in the new heaven and the new earth. That's why it's called light affliction. Because the weight of eternity breaks the scales in comparison to it. Eternity with God as his redeemed people will be so good that it will dwarf all the pains and sufferings of this life and make them seem small. Not because they were ultimately small or insignificant, but because the life to come with Christ will be so unfathomably great. So they don't seem light and momentary now, right? But how will they look 10,000 years from now, say? They'll look a lot different. And God's already looking at them with that perspective. He's not looking at them from our perspective, so that's why he has the authority to call them light and momentary. Because he knows one day we, his people will feel that way about them too. That's question number three. Question number four was a question about our humanity. Our humanity. The question is which characteristics would you use to define being created in the image of God. Has anyone wondered about that? What's it mean when it says we've been created in God's image? Um, go back to Genesis 1. You might want to flip there for a second here. We'll read Genesis 1, 26 through 27. That's where scripture first speaks of man being made in the image of God. Um it's the, the the sixth day, the, towards the end of the creation week there, when God says, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Now, I take the view uh, that the image of God is not properly understood as something that is in human beings, but as something that human beings are, something we are. That's how Scripture speaks, I think, of being made in the image of God. If, if, if you take the image of God as something that God puts within man or endows man with or uh, something like that as people do, then the debate becomes which characteristics of God has he put within man that constitute his image? What similarities do God and man share? And so answers like, well, it's our intellect and our creativity and our love, or it's our ability to relate to God and to others, or it's our ability to reason and think. Answers like that are, are put forth. But I see the image of God more as a function, more as a purpose given to man, more as man's identity than as intrinsic qualities that God shares with man. And some of that is is because what it meant to be an image in the ancient world um, that that word is actually used in the ancient world, out even outside of Scripture, uh, to mean just sim- something like a statue. That's what it refers to. It's a statue. So a king in the ancient Near Eastern world would set up images around his kingdom to indicate who ruled over the land. And so when people pass by that image, they would know who, who was king over this land. And I think that's much more in line with what the image of God is about in Genesis. Human beings were created to show that God is king. Over the earth. I think that even bears out in the command that, that is given to man directly after Moses tells us that God created man in his own image. What does he say? And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Why have dominion? Well, because they're God's representatives on the earth. They're serving the king of kings. They are representatives of earth's true king. They are his image on the earth. We are his statues indicating that he's in charge here. Pointing all the world to the true king is the purpose of every human being on earth. Because we're his image. Whether we do a good job of this is a whole other story, right? That's a brief answer, and hopefully it helps explain what it means to be made in the image of God. Then our fifth question was a question about Romans eight thirty-nine. Go ahead and turn to Romans 8, and we'll look at it together here. Romans 8, we'll read verses 38 and 39. Which says, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The question that was sent in was this one. Does the promise that nothing can ever separate a Christian from God's love in Romans 8:39 mean that a Christian can never lose his or her salvation? And is it right to use this verse as a comfort to professing Christians who are doubting their salvation? It's another great two-part question to which I would answer yes. And yes. Yes and yes. So yes, the promise that nothing can ever separate a Christian from God's love in Romans 8.39 does mean that a Christian can never lose his or her salvation. And I say that because Paul is speaking directly to Christians in Romans 8.39 to those who are in Christ, which you can see at the beginning of the chapter back in uh, verse 1 in chapter 8 where Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So to be in Christ Jesus is to be united to Christ Jesus. It's to be saved by Christ Jesus, to be hidden with Christ, as Paul um, puts it in Colossians 3. It's to be claimed by Christ, to be forever bound to Christ as Savior and Lord. And the direct subject of chapter 8 is the security of all genuine believers in Christ. That's at least one of the main subjects in Romans chapter 8. So Paul's primary aim in Romans 8 is to show believers that if they are truly in Christ, that is, if they're truly united to Christ through sincere faith in him, they are forever reconciled to God and forever safe with him. It's not simply that the love of God that Christians uh, or it's not simply the love of God that Christians will never be separated from, as Paul says. Since we know that there is a sense in which God loves all people, even those who are outside of Christ. But Paul makes it clear it is the love of God in Christ Jesus that we will never be separated from. That is God's saving love, his, his redeeming, rescuing, covenantal love for his people, meaning... That if you are truly in Christ and you've submitted to him as Lord and you've looked to him as the only savior of your soul, you will be forever right and forever reconciled and forever safe and forever secure with God. You will never be lost. You will make it to heaven. You will be conformed to Christ. God will finish in you what he has begun. No exceptions, no ifs, no conditions, no buts, no ends. no anything. It, it's going to happen. He's going to get the work Done. So then is this verse a verse I would use or would I, would I recommend using it to encourage a professing Christian who's struggling to find assurance of his or her salvation? And again, the answer is yes. In fact, that's exactly who Paul is speaking to or who he's anticipating in Romans chapter 8. He's anticipating those who have been so crushed and so hurt by the struggles and sufferings of life that they're now wondering if God has somehow turned on them and is no longer looking upon them with eyes of grace and, and saving love. It's to those very people that Paul says, listen, brothers and sisters, there is nothing, and I mean nothing, and he goes on, could it be this? No. Could it be that? No. Could it be this? No. Nothing that could ever separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. So I would say that these verses in all of Romans 8 really is especially useful for for encouraging a professing believer, someone uh with a credible, sincere profession of faith in Jesus alone as Lord and Savior. It's especially useful for encouraging a professing Christian who is doubting their salvation on account of the sufferings and the struggles that they're experiencing. In this life, by all means, we should use Romans 8 and especially those final verses to encourage those people and assure them of God's love for them. The one exception I would hold to this rule, though, is in the case of a person who claims to be a Christian, but who is living in just blatant, unrepentant sin. I think we need to be very careful and very cautious and even hesitant to use this part of Romans 8 to encourage people like that why because there's a chance that they may not be Christians at all but may be self-deceived unbelievers in need of honest repentance and not primarily encouragement could they be Christians who you know have taken God's leash and just run you know extended that thing uh, about as far as it'll go and could God at some point yank on it and bring them back sure could it also be that they're self-deceived it absolutely could be so we got to be careful there and not take God's place and make some declaration that we don't know if God himself has made about their soul be careful in that case um, and much more we could say about that, but that would be the one situation where I would not encourage using Romans 8:38 and 39 with a professing Christian doubting his or her salvation. You might rather want to use Romans 8 uh, verses 12 through 14 with people like that, and you can take a peek at those verses later, but probably not Romans 8:38 and 39. Well, that's five questions in about 45 minutes or so, so that's probably good for now. Let's pray. Father, we thank you truly that your word is able to shoulder even the most complex and troubling and difficult questions that we might have about you and your world. Thank you that you don't shy away from difficult issues. You don't, you don't run away from them. You're not afraid of them. Thank you that we can bring any question to you and find a, a sufficient answer for our souls. Sometimes that means we don't get much of an answer at all. And other times it means we get a really thorough and detailed one. But that's only because you know the questions that are most important for us to ask. And so we thank you that you and your grace and your kindness have dealt with those questions so that we might know you and love you. And know you through your son and be reconciled to you through him and live for your glory and obedience to him. Thank you for giving us all the words from heaven that we need to honor you in this life. So thank you for this time that we've had and Lord may your word by your spirit do a good work in our lives to draw us ever closer to your son. We do pray in his name. Amen.